You may be seated. Good morning. I definitely heard some feedback about last week's sermon. I got some angry accusational texts midweek as someone turned on their TV and felt a pang of guilt. And uh, that was not my intention. And if it makes you feel any better, last night I turned on the UC Bearcat game, which is a source of entertainment, and felt no pleasure for two hours. So sometimes the pursuit of pleasure uh, is an empty return on investment. Uh, but I don't, I don't want to hurt you again like that this week, so we're going to talk about something that makes everyone really comfortable, which is money. Uh, and I'm also going to change my number. So what we want to talk about this morning is we're going to continue in Ecclesiastes 2, and I'm actually even going to pull a little bit from Ecclesiastes 5, uh, but it's such a hodgepodge from 5 that I'm just going to tell you that now if you're a note taker. You can go read all of that later. Um, and as I was thinking about wealth and about money, and I'm going to try to use the word wealth instead of money, and I'll talk about that a little later. Uh, I was trying to think, you know, how do I really sum up how permeated the idea of wealth and the pursuit of wealth is in our culture? And I was reminded of a memoir that I read from a, if you can believe it, a stand-up comedian by the name of Trevor Noah, who was raised in South Africa under apartheid. And the name of his memoir is Born a Crime, because he was a mixed-race child, and the relationship between his parents was illegal. And it's, I mean, it's a beautiful memoir. It's really painful. Lots of ugliness uh, and sin that was systemic in their society. And uh, you know, even to visit his father, his mom had to dress up and pretend to be a maid to get into the part of town where she could see his father. And so he was growing up in this context where he was illegal and was recognized as being an illegal person just from his skin color being mixed uh, in South Africa. But being in such a cross-cultural environment, he picked up seven languages at a young age. And at age five or six... His grandma made him attend his Bible study with all people her age. And the reason was he was the only one in their household who had learned English. Now that might not make sense. But what his grandma told him, and this is what he learns from a young age, just think about what this does to your mind at a young age. She said, we need you here when we do our prayer requests at the end because people who pray in English are more effective at getting what they want from God. Because they had interacted with all of these American Christian missionaries and they thought English must be the language of God because look how wealthy they are. Look how well-to-do they are. And what struck me about that was even if we don't mean to, even if it's totally not even in our minds, even if it's not important to us, our primary, one of our primary cultural exports is the idea of wealth and the pursuit of wealth. Even if you don't personally ascribe to that, what other people will see and hear from you in other cultures is uh, that you are well-to-do. And you may not even feel well-to-do compared to the people around you. But what I, what I realized, there was this, this uh, willingly or complicitly, we are in a culture driven by wealth. And the church and Christians are not immune to that culture. It, it spreads throughout. And so I want to keep that in your mind 
Um, just once you feel guilty from the outset. No, I'm kidding. Uh, just want to make you aware of that. But what I really want to sink in every time I talk about money, every time I talk about wealth, is I will not allow you to read a text like this and think about other people. I can't have you thinking about wealthy people or someone who's been given wealth, someone who's been given resources by God as an other. You need to be thinking about whatever resources, whatever wealth you have been given by God and how the text applies to that. And so with that in mind, I'm going to read to you Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 21, which should be page 554. I believe it will be on the screens. It's already there. And as we turn there to read, I'm just going to open us in prayer. Father God, Thank you for the gift of this morning to gather together in worship uh, with your people and uh, in the city of College Hill. Uh, we just pray that you would open your word to us this morning, that you would give us uh, eyes to see, uh, minds to understand, and hearts to know and to apply, to seek after your wisdom and apply it to our lives. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also was vanity and a great evil. This is the word of the Lord. Now I notice in Ecclesiastes, the thanks be to God is a little more subdued. But <laughs> this, is, this is just as much God's word written for you today as uh, the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of John. And so it's important that we we look at this and that we take it seriously. And what I want to talk about this morning is a a couple things, obviously, but uh, this idea that many of us believe that wealth will give us control over life. Or that even going further than that, more than having control over life, that having wealth will provide meaning, that will provide purpose in life. And there's a sense in which everybody is in search of wealth, whether it's uh, a job promotion or someone playing uh, the lottery or gambling or even in the church there's health and wealth preaching teaching you how to increase your wealth uh, under the cloak of the gospel by the way you will not hear that here um, but the big idea that we're going to keep coming back to in ecclesiastes is this is that instead of pursuing wealth he recommends that we enjoy, learn to enjoy God's daily gifts. Now, that might sound familiar to you because that wisdom is applied throughout scripture. And if, you know, if you're a note taker, just here's a little homework for you. Go read Philippians. Philippians chapter four, four through seven, or four and seven. Um, Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Written by Paul from a prison. And so it's not circumstances that determine your contentment. It is not the amount of resources uh, that determine how content you are. And so there's two points we want to talk about this morning. And the first one is one that you probably already 
no, and would verbally say, yes, I agree with that, and that is this. You can't take it with you. How many people have heard you can't take it with you before in regards to wealth, money? Okay, apparently this is a new message for a lot of people, or your arms are not functioning because of the loss of sleep. Um, But most of us have heard that before, but very few of us live like that's true. And you're actually not the best person to ask if you live like, you should ask someone who's close to you if you live like that's true. And so some people save, we've heard stories of this, you'll see it on the news occasionally, you may even know someone like this, but people who save and save and save every penny for years and fail to enjoy life on a daily basis because they are planning to enjoy all of their stuff someday. They're saving up for some perfect day that, by the way, you take for granted God's daily gifts and you bank on a day that may never come. None of us are guaranteed any amount of life. And failing to enjoy God's daily gifts is the epitome of foolishness. Trying to bank so hard on a day that you are not guaranteed is to neglect God's daily gifts. And when I talked this morning about money, now the text uses money and it uses actually a few different words in there for riches and wealth. Uh, but I, the reason I want to talk about wealth instead of money is because by wealth, I just mean the acquisition of material gain. Whether that is money, whether that is stuff, whether that is clout or status, and really anything that your heart says to itself, if I just get enough of fill in the blank, then I will be truly satisfied with life. If I just get enough of this thing, then I will be satisfied with life. That's what we're talking about. And for you, that might not be money. For many of us, it is. Um, But whatever that is, no matter what you're stockpiling, you can't take it with you. Whether it's money or stuff or status, it all goes when you go. And... Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.20, which we read on Ash Wednesday, if you weren't there, I'll remind you. But it says pretty bluntly that whether you're rich or poor, you get buried in the same dirt. You don't get special dirt for having more money. You might get more of it, uh, if that's any consolation, but you might have a bigger plot. And he says, you know what, in fact, so do animals. Your pet dog, your pet cat, they all get buried in the same earth that you get buried in. It doesn't matter how much more you had. It's like, yeah, I'm the one who buys the kibble, but at the end of time, I will share the same earth as Alfred, my cat. And so some people try to exert uh, extra effort to control their stuff after they're gone. And that's really what this passage is talking about. He's saying, uh, what really grieves him is that he has built up all of this wealth, all of these possessions, all of this stuff, and it will go to the person who comes after him, and then it's totally out of his control. It might go to a fool. It might go to someone who's a complete idiot. Now, if your dad wrote this, that's not a great feeling. But uh, this is still a common problem. Now, you might wonder what I googled to find this, but... I found this term, which some of you in, in finance may know this. There's something called a spendthrift provision. Now, this was found in an article that was entitled, 
Can I prevent a child's inheritance from being squandered? So someone Googled that so many times that someone thought, I'm going to write an article about can I prevent a child's inheritance from being squandered. And here's the explanatory quote. They said, by adding a spendthrift provision to your trust, you can create rules for distributions from the trust. This allows you to take greater control over the circumstances which your child receives his or her inheritance after you're gone. So from the grave, you can reach out and try to manage your money. (laughs) To what purpose? I have no idea. To what end? I don't know. But what occurred to me when I was reading that article was that someone who, not not everyone probably, but many people who ask that article's question, can I prevent my child uh, from from squandering their inheritance, many people who are Googling that, searching that question, reading this article, are more concerned about the preservation and management of their own wealth than they are about the wellness of their child. Because... The article isn't, how can I raise a wise and responsible and self-sufficient child into an adult? The article is, how can I stop my child from acting like an idiot with my money? So which thing are you concerned about there? Your child or your money? And I think in that particular article, I read it from beginning to end, they are more concerned about controlling their money than they are about the child. And, And it's even... And now it's easy to scoff at that, but I mean, the real question here is, uh, why are we so much more interested in, in controlling the wealth than raising a wise child? And why is that so much less valuable? And so the question, I mean, many of us will look at that and we'll read it, and you're maybe even listening now and thinking, I don't have a trust fund. I promise you, Mike, that I will never have a trust fund, so I don't have to worry about that. But what you should be wondering is, what questions do I most want answered? What are the questions you Google on a regular basis that you turn over in your head? And what do those questions say about your contentment, your happiness, and your priorities? So maybe you're not trying to stop your future child from wasting your money after you're gone. But maybe there is something that keeps you up at night. And what does that question say about your contentment, your happiness, your ability to enjoy life? And what does it say about what you value and what you pursue? And so that's the first point. You can't take it with you. You can even try to control it after you're gone, but there's really no point. And um, we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. And the second point that we want to talk about, and this does come from Ecclesiastes 5, which I'll read some of that to you. And this is a direct quote is that the lover of money will not be satisfied with money. The lover of wealth, the lover of stuff, will not be pursued, or will not be pacified, they won't be satisfied with the thing that they are pursuing. Now, I want you to take a moment and just listen. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, it's 5, 10 through 6, 9, if you're a note taker. Uh, and I'm not going to read that entire thing to you because... Uh, I was told from my wife that it's too confusing to listen to without an hour of explanation, and uh, there was great wisdom in her saying that to me. Uh, and so I've just got a few quotes from it that I'm going to share with you that I think will help sink in what the passage is talking about. And the first is this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the fool's stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. All the toil, uh, all of the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. And finally, now you're going to find that I'm reading this part to you last, but it actually comes in the center of that passage, and that's because of an ancient Hebrew writing technique that I will not expand on it in this sermon. Uh, but it, the concluding summative thought is this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. Now that's Ecclesiastes 5 going into chapter 6. And the key for, of all of that is this quote, that the lover of money will be not be satisfied with money. And this is what I really want you to pull out. When, so that's, uh, I think that's chapter 5 verse 10. So that's really at the beginning of this section. And notice he did not say the rich person will not be satisfied with money. He said the lover of money. Do you have to be rich to be a lover of money? No. Do you have to be a lover of money in order to be rich? No. So this isn't about what you possess. It is about what is precious. So instead of looking at someone's circumstance, looking at the quantity of their wealth, you look at the relationship they have to that wealth. And what the teacher is saying is that once you start down the path of becoming someone who pursues wealth, you will find that it never ends. Now, I think one of the best illustrations for this, and I don't know why we're getting into classical literature uh, weekly now, but it's from uh, A Christmas Carol, which most of us have heard or seen uh, or seen some adaptation of, uh, the man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who had amassed more wealth than anyone around and was the most unpleasant person in town. And of course, he is contrasted with Bob Cratchit, his uh, employee who barely has enough to feed his family, yet took everything he received as a gift from God and was able to enjoy every pleasure that he encountered. Ebenezer Scrooge, with all of his money, is not able to enjoy any of the pleasures of life. However, by the end of the play, we see Scrooge turn around, proving that life can be enjoyed both with and without wealth, as long as life isn't built around wealth. You see, that's a fine distinction. Now, see, this is why I tried to tell you earlier, if you didn't hear me then, hopefully you hear me now, that this is not about how much money you do or don't have. This is about what you pursue, what drives you uh, to live your life. And one commentator sums it up like this and says, wealth itself is not the problem here, but the insatiability of those who love money. There is always more to want. There is always something else. And so as we conclude the text this morning, what 
the teacher is telling, saying to us is that there are essentially two ways to live. The first way is you try to find a sense of identity, a sense of purpose in the pursuit of wealth, which most of us can think of uh, people who have fallen prey to that. Sometimes we ourselves are caught in that way of thinking and that way of living. That's the first way to live is to try to find your sense of identity and purpose in the pursuit of wealth. And the second is to find your sense of purpose in your relationship with God and then enjoy whatever wealth you do or don't have. And this should sound familiar if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read uh, in the, into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus warns us not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Because he concludes that section in Matthew 6 by saying, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is just kind of looking at it in reverse. He's saying, I ran all the way to the end of that path and realized that my heart was in the wrong place. Jesus is maybe even trying to save you a little time and frustration by giving you the answer more more straightforward. And, and then he also concludes that you can't serve both God and money. If you're serving God and money... One of them you will love and the other you will hate. And one of them will always be uh, subservient to the other. If you're pursuing God, you will use money in your pursuit of God, in your relationship with God. And if you're pursuing money, you will use God to pursue money. Uh, and in Matthew sixteen twenty six, Jesus also says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so maybe you've never really contemplated the depths of what Jesus has saved you from or offers to save you from. It is not just your own sin, but it is from futility. The futility, the vanity, the emptiness of life that is described again and again in Ecclesiastes, Jesus offers a different way to live. He offers this way uh, as, a God, as a gift from God, purchased by Jesus on the cross. And he saves us from this futility of life, this sense of meaninglessness, this sense of purposelessness, and this inability to enjoy God's daily gifts. And he sets us free from that so that we can enjoy everything that God has given us and everything that God provides. And God's gift to us in Jesus is that we can build our lives around what matters, and then we can enjoy every other aspect of life. Because we're not trying to make uh, small, enjoyable things into ultimate things. We have our ultimate purpose laid out for us in Jesus. And that sets us free to enjoy every other aspect of life. And so as we've been going through this series, we keep talking about declutter and focus. And so I've got two applications for you this week. And one of them is a way to declutter and one is a way to focus your life. And to declutter, here's what I want to suggest to you. If all or most of your life decisions are based around money, then you have allowed money or the wealth to clutter your life. If all of your decisions in life are based around wealth and the pursuit of wealth, then wealth is what is cluttering your life. And here's the, the thing, whether you have so much money and now feel like you can't get enough or whether you don't have enough money because you're squandering it, you're wasting it, either way, money is your master. If money is what controls your actions, controls your thoughts, controls your motivations, whether you have none or plentiful, money is still your master. 
And that's an improper relationship with resources. And, you know, one way to test it is you may ask yourself and be very honest is if someone gave you $10 or $100 or a million dollars right now, what would you immediately go do with it? Now, you have to be honest with yourself because I have found that if I'm not honest with that answer, I will be put to that test within about seven days. And that's the simplest way to know your heart's desires. And if you don't like doing hypotheticals, go back and look at your bank statement. Say, where did I spend my money that I've been given? Look at where it's gone. And here's a simple test of clutter for the Christian life. Now, if you've been a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this one uh, won't make as much sense to you. But here's the question for decluttering your life for a Christian. Does tithing hurt? Is it painful to think about tithing? Now, tithing is a Christian term. It's a term that is actually just invented for the King James Version. It literally means a tenth. Ten percent, one-tenth. And if you cringe at the idea uh, with parting with ten percent of your income, I've got to tell you, you might have some some money clutter in your life and in your priorities, and it might be clouding your relationship with God. Because if you cringe at the idea of parting with 10% of your income, whether you cringe because you have so much money that 10% is a very large number, or you feel like you have so little money that 10% wouldn't really matter, the point is that you're missing it. The point is not that it's supposed to be painful, Tithing is an invitation. God invites us each to participate in his mission and his work of the church through the simple act of tithing. And it's rearranging your life around your belief in God, around your relationship with God. Now, I don't know anyone, whether they have a ton of money or no money, that can accidentally give 10%. That doesn't happen. You have to rearrange your life, your priorities, your spending uh, in order to free up 10% and not, you know, not 7, 8% if it's left over, but the first 10% is really what the Bible says. And if that makes you cringe, that makes you uncomfortable, that might say something about your relationship with God and your relationship with money. And so that's for you to consider decluttering. But the other thing that I want you to focus on, instead of the futility, the pain, and all this other stuff, uh, we need to learn to focus on these daily gifts of God. And this is what the writer of Ecclesiastes keeps coming back to, saying, you know, if you're missing the daily gifts of God, you're missing life. If you're missing the simple joys of food and drink and even work, then you're missing the things that God is providing for you daily for enjoyment. Now, uh, I think my generation actually has a leg up on enjoying food. I don't know if you've noticed, but... Uh, most of our Instagram accounts, about 50% of the pictures are a meal that we're about to eat. And uh, it's like celebrating this meal. Like, look how wonderful this is. Uh, they're really learning to enjoy the simple things. Now, uh, there might be some different kind of meaning of the word vanity in that. But uh, even still, it's to stop and pause and celebrate. And Drew was on vacation with his kids in Australia. And he said, you know, the camera gets the first bite of every meal. He said every time they got a meal, they took the camera out and took a picture of it. And it was just this, uh, maybe it wasn't meant this way, but it was just a pause to celebrate God's daily gifts. You know, look how wonderfully prepared this is. Look how good this is. And celebrate the small little things in life that actually end up accumulating. And you recognize God's goodness 
uh, through everyday life. And so what you need to focus on then is the love of God for you. In whatever provisions you've been given, uh, if you have a job, if you get food daily, if you get to enjoy a drink every once in a while, that's the kind of stuff that the writer, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us to learn to enjoy and to learn to recognize that as a gift of God, that it's a sign that God loves you. And it's not that God loves the world in the abstract, it's God loves you. Uh, God does love the world in the abstract, but it's going to be more recognizable to think of it, to focus on it as God's love for you in particular. And if you learn to recognize God's daily gifts and take joy in them, you'll find that life is more enjoyable and that you are like, less likely to be cluttered uh, by things like the pursuit of pleasure, entertainment, or wealth and money. Will you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you again for the gift of your written word, for the wisdom that it provides, for the challenge that it offers, uh, and for the growth uh, that it offers each of us. We pray that we would recognize our own shortcomings, that we would recognize our dependence and our attachment to things that uh, ultimately don't matter, that will not bring satisfaction, that will not bring joy, things that are not worth building our lives around. We pray that you would not only guide us to recognize this, but that we would encourage and spur each other on in our faith and in our understanding, in our pursuit of relationship with you, which is a gift from you through the work of your son, Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song.